This is a pretty strange passage to look at on the Sunday before Christmas, whether it's a bit like a Cohen Brothers film, as Andy alluded to or not, I'll leave you to make your own minds up. But it made me remember, since Friday was our 16th anniversary, that there is an ongoing um, argument, might be too strong, so in, in marital terms, we call it a healthy discussion. There's an ongoing argument or healthy discussion that happens in our home between Joe and I, and it's over this. Did we ever actually have a first date? Did we ever actually have a first date? She's not in here, so I can use this illustration. I think we did. I think we went to the Royal Albert Hall with some student friends. Okay, we weren't by ourselves. There was a few thousand people there. But um, we went to see the Messiah when we were students at Kingston University. I know how to show a girl a good time. Um, And it made me reflect as I looked at this passage and thought about 18, 19 years ago when we started to court. um, It made me think about the Messiah. We live in a very politically correct age. And if you've ever actually Googled the words to the Messiah, it is shocking. It is subversive. Handel's masterpiece that he wrote in something like 24 days, it's crazy. It traces the Christmas story. It begins actually in Isaiah 40 with the promises from the Old Testament about the concern that the Israelites had for salvation. It then speaks of judgment, the impending wrath of God against sinful humankind. Then it speaks of a birth of an infant, then of the angels coming, then of the life and uh, sufficient death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then of his resurrection, and then the fact that he's going to return again in glory and power and judgment. And yet this song and these songs, the Hallelujah Chorus, for example, that everybody knows, Hallelujah, is saying that God is omnipotent. He's the omnipotent king over all. And yet this song is allowed to be sung still and it's subversive. It could be called even extremism in the modern world. In an age where a child of mine is not allowed to mention the name of Jesus in a school nativity service lest it offend people. And what we have here in this passage is very offensive. I don't know if you noticed when we heard it read to us, and I don't know if you've felt it in recent weeks as we've looked again at the infancy narratives. Everything that Luke has constructed and recorded after he's listened and interviewed eyewitnesses is subversive. It's divisive, it's confrontational, it's not comfortable, it's not sentimental, but it's the first Christmas. We're introduced to some new characters in the story, Simeon, and verse 36, there's Anna as well. Luke has constructed the story so that there is now three couples that we've been introduced to. There's uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then there's Mary, and then we meet Joseph. And now there's another couple, an older couple. Their names are Simeon and Anna. And it's Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph. Their stories are intertwined at the temple. It's there in verses 22 through to verse 40. And very simply, for Simeon and for all of Israel and for us, this passage says, The waiting is over. 
The waiting is over. There are no more sleeps to Christmas. There are no more sleeps to receive the gift you've always wanted. Simeon, the waiting is over. It says that in verse 25. That's where we meet him. Simeon is a righteous and devout man. It's the same words that are used for Zechariah in chapter 1. And he's there at the temple. He's there worshipping our God and our Father, the God of the whole world. He's there worshipping, but he's also waiting. He's waiting for God to answer his promise. And it's been, as we said a week or so ago, 400 years of silence between Old Testament and New, where God has appeared dumb. His promises are looking like they're broken and will never be fulfilled. And yet here he is, verse 25, in the temple in Jerusalem, waiting and waiting and waiting. And then two parents come into the temple. We're not told anything special about them. We're not told that they wore name badges like they do in many churches. So Simeon could say, I know who you are. I've been waiting for you. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, verse 25 and verse 26 and verse 27, Simeon knows that these parents, and more particularly this baby, is special. He's unique. He's the one that he's been waiting for. He's the one he's been longing for. Now this is remarkable. Under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, this man who is longing for this baby to come, for the hope of Israel, for the consolation, for the comfort of Israel, for the redemption of Israel, for the liberation of Israel, he sees this baby and he knows the waiting is over. He hadn't heard a word of him teach. He hadn't seen any of the miracles performed. He hadn't seen him with his arms outstretched on the cross. And yet Simeon knows, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that the waiting is over. He knows as he cuddles and, uh, as it were, rests this baby in his arms, as he looks into his eyes, he knows that he's holding the Saviour of the world. He knows that in his arms is a baby who will end all pain. He knows that in his arms is a baby who will end all suffering. And it was the answer to sadness. And it was the fulfillment of God's promise. And you know when you go to see a baby, a newborn baby, whether it's a relative of yours, you go to the hospital, sometimes you struggle when you have foot and mouth disease. You might say, oh, they look just like their father. And you find out they're a girl. You might say, oh, it's the same appetite as their mother, or something like that. I always get in trouble when I say things. What a lot of hair they've got. Look at what Simeon says. He doesn't say anything so trite or superficial. He actually reveals the longing of his heart. A longing that has been long coming. He's not lost for words. He's not struggling for what to say. Look at what he says, verse 29 to 32. These are not the words of a, a lullaby as if a baby is fractious. These are words that reveal an aching in his heart has been appeased. A groaning of his spirit is now coming to an end. The longing, the waiting is over. He's weary of hoping. He's weary of waiting. But the longing is over. Lord, verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The language he uses here, very interesting. It's the language of a watchman. You know, in ancient times, there would be walled cities and they would be appointed on top of the walls, probably above the gate, the only entrance to the city. There would be someone looking out, someone who would take it in shift to look and to protect the city. And here we've got a watchman looking and waiting, looking into the distance, looking to protect his people, as it were. And yet we're told that the Spirit of God has told him, has made him aware, has illuminated the truth to him, that the waiting is over. You don't need to be on the lookout anymore. Your role as watchman for Israel has come to an end. You can lay down your tools, so to speak. Because here in your arms is the hope for all people, not just Israel. Here is the hope for the nations. Here is not something, but someone who will truly comfort someone who will console, someone who will redeem, somebody who will save. And in these verses, verses 29 to 32, as this aged man holds this newborn babe, there is a longing and a question that comes to each one of us. See, each one of us can be longing and searching for something. Each one of us structures our lives looking out from the walls of our hearts, so to speak. We might be looking and waiting for a relationship. If only so-and-so would come into my life, then I would be, then I'd know freedom. If only I could get to that next rung on my career path. If only I had a salary bump in January 2016. We're looking and looking and looking for something that we define for ourselves as hope, something that will bring us comfort and peace, as Simeon longed for. Perhaps it's that figure or an image that would get us noticed for the first time. Something to bring us comfort. Something that would bring us hope and a direction and something that would fill that desire in our heart. Something that promises much to us. And here is Simeon, verse 29, who can say at the end of his life, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I've been looking, I've been waiting, I've been watching, but now you've answered the promise. And so now, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so now he can depart in peace. What is it for you? What is it for you that you're hoping for in your life can bring you peace? Is it salary? Is it leisure? Is it figure? Is it family happiness? Is it the next bottle? What is it that you are hoping for, that you're on the ramparts of your heart looking for, thinking will bring you comfort? And don't just think, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, that I'm just speaking to you. Christians, we can operate in just the same way. We can give mental assent to truth that Jesus is Lord, and yet at a heart level... We can be operating in just the same way. If only I had another, if only I had an extra, if only God would direct me in the way that I know is best for my life, then I would be comfortable, then I would know true peace. Simeon's hopes, Simeon's desires, and God's promise have been answered in this baby, in this child in this little person, this chubby little baby that he held in his arms. 
For in this baby, he didn't just see what he longed for, but he saw what each one of us need in this baby. And the waiting is over. How is this, how's it going to happen? How is God going to do what verse 29 to 32 say? How will God save? How will he bring glory to his people? Well, to get the answer for that, we need to look down at an ominous omen, verses 34 to 35. If the waiting is over in the birth of this baby... Verses 34 to 35 are not really a Christmas text to be preached upon, which is why we're looking at it today. Behold, this child is appointed, says Simeon, for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Here we get a sober truth as we journey towards Christmas, if we really understand these verses. We're reminded, just like the words from Handel's Messiah, that Christmas is actually divisive. The gospel is disruptive. If you say Jesus is Lord, that is not an easy truth to live by. It's repulsive for people. But everywhere that Jesus walked, every sentence that he taught... Jesus and his life did two things. It repulsed people. It pushed people away. It polarized people. But at the same time, many were attracted to his life. His teaching was one that only had unique authority. For some, it drew them to him, seeing that he's the Lord and the giver of life. Lord, to who else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But to others, their hearts were hardened and they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. You say, oh, hang on, isn't Christmas, I want a nice Christmas message that's about peace on earth and goodwill to all men. But the gospel always divides, and Simeon can see that right at the beginning of the Lord Jesus' life. Behold, verse 34, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Simeon can see that for true and lasting peace that we all want, there will need to be conflict. For true and lasting peace, there needs to be a rude awakening about the truth of a present reality in the world. We can't just say, peace, peace, and there will be peace. There needs to be a confrontation of the status quo. There's peace through conflict. There's peace through trouble. I've got all my dentistry badges. I don't know how many you have. I've got the lot. Three years ago, I got my final badge that I didn't have and I didn't want. It's the badge that says you've had root canal. Root canal is the most painful dentistry procedure I've ever had. I pray that I will never have it. For audience participation, who else has had a root canal? It's, it's up there with the best of them. I had an abscess underneath the tooth. I won't show you the x-rays. It's pretty gross. But the abscess was sorted out, and then the gentleman said, you need root control. It's root canal. It's going to hurt a wee bit. I had a plastic bit placed between my jaw so I couldn't bite my own tongue, and then the drilling began. No matter how hard you try and block it out, and I am a wimp when it comes to pain, I could still hear it. I'll stop there because some of you are screaming. 
But I rest assured, it's the most painful dentistry procedure I've ever had, but I'm glad I had it. Because peace comes through conflict. If you have a tumour in your brain, you're thankful for a surgeon that brings a scalpel to bear under skillful, authoritative hands. If you have cancer, you are thankful for a nurse or a doctor that controls a laser so that blood can be let and cells can be corrected, cells can be removed. For peace, there must be conflict. For peace, there must be a rude awakening, a realignment. For peace and wholeness, there has to be intervention or there's no healing. And Simeon can see that in this babe. It's not just about him. This is a prophetic word for all of the Lord Jesus' life, verse 34 and 35. He will be for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul, speaking to his mum, so thoughts and hearts of many may be revealed. Simeon is saying, Jesus has come to divide. There'll be something about his life that will bring peace on earth, but it's peace through conflict. He's looking right to the end of the cross. There's no way when you really understand the truth of Christianity and the claims of Jesus that you can sit on the fence anymore. It's either true for everybody or it's true for nobody. When you hear Hannah's Messiah ring out, he's king of kings and lord of lords, you have to respond to that. You have to think either this is truth of power and authority of a Lord that I must not just give mental assent to and acknowledge, but bow before and worship. Jesus doesn't just mean what we need. He claims to be Lord of all, which means he demands and commands our worship. I saw on Instagram this week that one of the main reasons for people not becoming Christianity, it must be true, it's on Instagram, is perhaps because we don't like anyone telling us what to do anymore. We can say that Jesus is king, but one of the most offensive things about that is if he is king, that means we are not. No one taught as he did. No one had power over nature like he has. No one could cure people of evil spirits like he did. No one had authority over death like he has. And if he's Lord, then the gospel says there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And that's the claim and the confrontational nature of the gospel and of Jesus. And that's what Simeon can see. He's come to divide. He's come to reveal the thoughts in people's hearts. And verse 34 says, right at the beginning of his life, not only is the waiting over, but there's an ominous omen of what will happen in Jesus' life and in his death. He's going to divide many in Israel. He's going to divide people and he's going to divide hearts with a sword. He's pointing forward 30 years to the cross, to the crucifixion. And notice verse 35, Mary will suffer loss in the death of her son as well. It won't just be opposition to her son, but it will reach such fever pitch that people will be shouting for, to end his life with a sword. A sword will pierce his body. Blood will be spilt. And so as a mum watching as her son is crucified, a sword will pierce her soul as well. This is what Christmas is about. It's a complete wake-up call, beyond the fluff and the tinsel and the sentimentality. 
This is what Christmas is about. It shows us that we are so far gone, we are so distant from God, that unless he acts, unless he intervenes, unless he, like a divine physician, comes with a divine scalpel to act and to heal, we will never be able to be healed. We will never be able to be made whole. We cannot work our way to God. He's too great, he's too good, he's too pure. And we're too sinful, we're too broken, we're too stubborn. We're too self-satisfied living lives where we are king that we don't to acknowledge that he is Lord of all. And unless God is prepared to make the ultimate journey, the status quo will remain. And all that's for us is judgment. But Christmas, praise God, is all about the journey that God made. From the heavens above to the earth below, from the glory of heaven to the cradle and then to the cross. And Simeon can see all of that as the Holy Spirit empowers him. He sees that when this baby grows from a babe to a boy, from a boy to a man, from a cradle to a cross, he'll die for the sins of the world. And it's a complete wake-up call at Christmas that through the shedding of, not our blood, but through the shedding of his blood, there will be a way of peace made. That's the gospel beginning at Christmas. And if this is what it takes to win us back, what a wake-up call it is for us. And this is why we sing at Christmas. Because it means that there's nothing that we could do. The condition of our hearts is far worse than we can ever see ourselves. But God in his mercy and grace pursued us, went on the ultimate journey, and became small, so small, that as Annie said, he who flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. That's the gift of Christmas. The only real solution to our great need is for God to come into space and time. And that's why we sing joy to the world, because there is, because he has. It's a truth that divides nations. God didn't come into the world because he had to. But Christ came into the world and was born in Bethlehem because we needed him to. And that's why we sing. He had to get his hands dirty. He had to get his hands bloody. He had to have his side cut into with a sword. He had to have his arms outstretched and nails to a cross. And Simeon can see this in this baby that he's protecting in his arms. The waiting is over, but there's an ominous omen. See, God's peace always comes through conflict. It says that in verse 35. And how are we to respond? If this is true, then it's a bit like antiseptic. You know when you've got a wound on your body and you need antiseptic, it stings for a little bit, but then healing and wholeness comes. Someone's put it in these words. God's peace always comes through conflict. Antiseptic is like repentance when we turn and say sorry to God. It stings, but it heals. There's no way to gain peace without going through the pain of repentance. doesn't matter what your sins are, but peace with God is possible through repentance. It's like the antiseptic on a wound. And Simeon looks at this child, and he doesn't just see someone who will die for his sins, for the sins of Israel, 
but for the whole world, for all those that the Lord Jesus would draw to himself. He sees the end to suffering and sorrow, but that begins with repentance in individual hearts, of us coming to God and saying, God, I've lived for myself as king. I've said, shove off God. I've said, me first. I've not given a thought to other people. But even today, at this Christmas, you can accept the gift of God, who is Jesus. And that begins with a sting of repentance that says, sorry to God. I'm truly sorry for the way that I've lived. I've not uh, taught, or rather, not treated you as I ought to have done. I've not lived, given you any thought in my life. But today, I want to come to you again, and I want to say, I'm sorry. And it will sting like repentance, because you'll have to change. But like a child, you don't just repent. You need to be an expert, as children are in five days' time, at receiving gifts. What do I mean? Children are brilliant on, well, sometimes they're brilliant on Christmas morning, but they're very good at receiving gifts. How do you receive a gift? You receive a gift with empty hands. You know, it's said more often than not, it's blessed to give than to receive. Perhaps the only exception to that is becoming a Christian. It's better to receive than to give. Because if you understand what it means to become a Christian and that sting of repentance of saying sorry to God, you recognize that like a child, you need to be an expert and we bring nothing to God And so we come with empty hands. We don't say, look at my past performance. We don't say, look at all the things I'm going to do for you in the future. You don't say, I'll become a Christian when you do this for me. But but becoming a Christian is a sting of repentance. It's saying sorry to God for the way we've lived. And it's turning and accepting with open hands the gift of Jesus Christ, placing our faith and trust in his work on the cross. That's what it means to become a Christian. You might think, I can't wait for this year to be over. You might think 2016 has got to be better than 2015. You might think there's so much heartache in 2015 you can't even begin to understand what I've been through. Well, Jesus knows. And even this morning, you could have a fresh start that will end 2015 and begin 2016 in the most wonderful ways. And it begins with the sting of repentance. And it begins with receiving the gift of God who is Jesus Christ. How is it possible that God would act in this way because he is so great, he is so loving, and he has a consuming passion for his own glory, for his fame and renown to be made much of, and he loves people too. True blessing, says this passage in the whole Bible, begins with receiving the greatest gift, just as Simeon did, and he cradled in his arms the hope for the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with this. Everything is costly at Christmas. Credit cards always get pretty stretched, so we say. Pockets get emptied. Bank accounts get very low. Simeon can see that God has paid everything. And he offers us the greatest gift the world will ever see. And all you need to receive this gift is nothing. Our problem is that we want to give God something. But becoming a Christian, we give God nothing but our own sin. And he pays all the checks, he pays all the bills, all the costs. And Simeon can see that. So the waiting is over. But there's an ominous omen in the birth of this baby about how his life will continue and most importantly how it will end. But because Jesus was born, 
because he lived a perfect life, because he died a sufficient death, there's hope for the world. And that's what Christmas is all about. All you need to receive Jesus is nothing. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy as a Christian to give you mental assent, to accept truth, and to then seek to live a changed life in our own strength. We don't want to do that. Please help me to live in response to your great mercy and grace. This in many ways is a hard and a sobering passage on a Christmas, uh, on Sunday before Christmas, but help us please to see in this ominous omen that Simeon utters, there is hope for the world. So please would you renew our joy in the gospel if we're Christians. If we're not yet Christians, please help us to understand that Jesus Christ is indeed the hope for the world, but he's also the Lord. And so we need to respond to him in due kind and bow before his authority. But we thank you so much that Jesus brought peace. He made a way back, but that came through conflict. Father, thank you that Jesus, before the world was even made, agreed to the plan of salvation. And because of that, we've got hope and joy and help us to sing like we mean it, whether that be now, this afternoon, or in the days ahead, because there is indeed joy to the world, because the Saviour came. Amen.